Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we'll be talking about how to thrive in your strategy career, which will cover everything from how to be a great leader to how to shift to freelance. Today, how to thrive as a strategist in the U.S. Today, we're talking to Justine Ferron, Executive Strategy Director at Gray New York. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Tank for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. I've been at Gray for about six years in New York. And before that was at Taxi's New York office. And before that, I was at Taxi Toronto, where you and I worked together for a couple of years. Yeah, that was, that was a long time ago. What what was the year that you left? I'm trying to remember now. Was it 2014, 2015? Yeah, it was early 2015. I like got in, got married in 2014. And then the minute I could like legally <laughs> go to New York and take someone with me, um, I did. And so yeah, I've been in New York since then. And what, what made you decide to to take the leap? I mean, I have always had sort of a bit of a Thing about New York, which makes me neither unique nor interesting. <laughs> I'm like quite aware. Um, but I've also had this sort of belief that the places that we are born, it's just arbitrary. It's just pure luck to be born in one place versus another. And so I have always had the sense that like, what are the odds that the place you happen to be born is going to be the place that's right for you? And in my case, the place where I happened to be born was London, Ontario, um, which is like, if nothing, if not sort of like a you know, like platonic ideal of suburbia, if you like that sort of thing. But I didn't. And I spent like most of my adolescence in like this sort of like deep state of adolescent angst, um, wishing and yearning to leave. And I never really outgrew that. Um, I think much to my parents continued chagrin now that I'm here and keep staying here. And so I was the sort of proverbial like teenager locking herself in the room, like reading, you know, magazines and books and watching movies set in New York and thinking, I'm going to live there someday. And so I've always wanted to, and I had a sort of false start um, in the sense that when I was in grad school, I went to grad school in the States and I was able to do my internship in New York and stay there for a year and, you know, fall desperately in love with the place only to have uh, visa complications send me back. Um, But dogged and determined as I am, um, I found another way through taxi. So I, yeah, it's been like a lifelong project um, to be here. So the leap was more like a, you know, endless pursuit of something that finally happened and finally stuck. And, and New York specifically, like, did you consider London or Singapore or any, anywhere else? Yeah. And had, I, still, had your heart? I mean, I still might, like my, I, my youngest brother lives in Stockholm and has for even longer than I um, have lived in. New York. And so the notion that like there are other places we could go, I think about that all the time. Whenever I've had a bad day at work, I either Google PhD programs or I Google like, you know, working in like insert, you know, giant city in Asia or like charming city in Europe. So I do think about that sometimes. I think there is something very specific about New York that happens to be quite well suited to me. Um, and yeah. So will we go? We may go. Um, but I do think that there is something about this place that I've kind of come to like love and feel at home in. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we chatted about this a little bit before. I mean, when when you first left, like, what, what was it? Was, did you have a plan? Like, how long did you think you were going to be gone for? And, you know, how how has that shifted <laughs> your expectations? 
I told my husband who I'd then like just, just gotten married to, um, and who is like the biggest Canada booster who grew up in like Hamilton and would like paper our entire house with like Hamilton merch if he could. And is like a huge fan of the Habs and just like very much someone who loves the place where he grew up and was very therefore reluctant to come here. I told him a year. Um, and I think he viewed it as like, um, uh, this was a thing that was important to me and he was going to do it because it was. And I have been like essentially spent years building the case for why you know it should be important to all of us and we should want to stay. And I think that didn't really work for the first couple of years. I don't think he felt particularly at home here and missed uh, things about Toronto specifically, which is where we were living before we left. And now I do think he feels differently. Like we are, I think within the last year or so, finally at a moment, we're both about equal levels of attachment to uh, to this place and don't we no longer have a like a New York exit strategy. Wow. After eight years. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a slow road. <laughs> love it. Love yeah. that persistence. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, what have you learned as a strategist in the U.S.? I mean, I think a lot of us uh, feel that gravitational pull, especially to New York, um, it being so close, you know, bigger budgets, bigger brands. Uh, you know, what have you learned being there? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has always been true of me and has become sort of more clear, though, over time is that this is a place, and I think this is probably true of any city people choose to go to that's not the city of their birth or relative proximate birth, is like, if you're going to go, go for the life that you think you can have and not for the work. I was surprised to discover where I came here because when I came here, New York represented something obviously very like romantic, (laughs) dream-wise, but this city is peopled in part by people like me who come from far away full of like starry-eyed ideas about what the city means, but it's also peopled by a lot of people from like Westchester and Long Island and Jersey who grew up sort of within the like one hour commuting distance of New York City. And New York is just to them what Toronto was to me when I was growing up in London, Ontario, which is to say like the sort of closest big city in the place where the jobs were. So the city is full of people who didn't choose the city for romantic reasons, but rather for like very practical, like this is where the jobs are. I'm going to come in for this, which shocked me at first because I was like, you know, who could be anything but like just like all, all the all the cliches were true of me. Um, but what's been really interesting is watching then all my colleagues for whom this was just a practical choice because it's where they could work leave like the last couple of years have provided opportunities for, you know, people to work remotely and people to go to companies that will allow them to work from anywhere. I like 75% of my colleagues live in Hudson now. <laughs> I feel like the like exodus from Brooklyn to upstate New York is very real amongst the people I work with. And so if I had been here just to work, like if I had viewed the moving here as the sort of like mercenary, my career will be better. As you said, the budgets will be bigger, the opportunities will be larger, the brands will be more famous. I think if I had come just for that, I would have found the city really like trying and depressing. And then everyone I know would have left and I would have found it sort of doubly so. So I guess I'm grateful to have chosen this, even though it's like somewhat mockable for like relatively romantic reasons, because those things stay true, even as the like, I think professional distinction of working in New York has been considerably eroded, one might say, in the last little bit. 
So it sounds like you had a, a real love for New York. I mean, you kind of alluded to that earlier with your with your grad school, and that's kind of just grown as you've been there. Yeah, I think my like feeling of being it's changed. I think I like spent at first, and I think this is true of everybody living in any place. And I'm certainly not <laughs> I think of the belief that I'm like a special snowflake in this respect. But I think the first bit of time anyone spends in a city is just sort of like full of wonder if you love that place. I think it's a different thing over eight years to have come to have two children in a city and enroll people in school in a city and move to what's now my sixth apartment in the city and come to know it sort of at like a intimately like do your taxes, don't do jury duty because you're still not American kind of way. Um, And yet I do still, yeah, do still love it. And perhaps even more because now it feels like just like life rather than um, some special glossy thing. Yeah, I like so that. You t- found a oh, way to weave the two together. What, what, what's the second thing that you've learned being there? I mean, this is like a little, a little practical, sad little detour, but is about becoming a visa pro or your own like immigration best <laughs> advocate. I think I had this like delusion because of where I grew up, because it was so close to the U.S. border. I like, you know, my basic cable ads were for like Detroit carpet stores. And like my mom drove to the US to get gas. Like we were like quite close. And so I had, because of that, this sort of feeling that America and Canada were quite alike and that the sort of, there was a fuzziness between the two. You could just drive there to go get gas. You didn't even need a passport when I was a kid. Um, I was shocked when I discovered as an adult, um, first when I went to school and then when I came back through taxi by what like a logistical nightmare it is to go to a country, which as you said, is like the city happens to be very close (laughs) to where, um, you know, to like Toronto geographically. Um, Emmett is one of three kids. Um, He's the only one who lives in a different country. He's also the closest to his parents significantly because his siblings live in Alberta. So we are technically close. It feels fuzzy. We watch the same movies and television and shop at the same stores. And yet the like logistics, the money, the organization required to like get here and stay here is absolutely wild. And I think I did have this sort of like hubris about it at first where I believed, you know, I saw there are a lot of um, people, you know, at the various agencies I've worked at in New York who aren't American. And sometimes they come and they stay and sometimes they leave. And often when they leave, it's because their visa expired and they found themselves in this sort of like weird like they couldn't legally stay moment. And at first I was like, oh, you just like, you know, you didn't get it together to like get your applications in or like you weren't organized enough. I'm like very type A, I got this made. But what I didn't understand then that I understand now is how much like luck and timing and just like your agency's willingness to spend vast quantities of money to keep you are much bigger determinants of whether you can legally stay than any like inborn skill or talent you might have. Um, I like managed to stay and get a green card by the skin of my teeth, but I have like no illusion that that was because I was like particularly like special or good. I just like, it just came through in the nick of time and I'm thrilled that it did. But I guess one lesson I've learned is I no longer believe that if you're good enough, you'll find a way to stay here. I think, you know, there's like so much in life generally that's beyond our control. And I think that's particularly true of this situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That feels kind of anxiety ridden. <laughs> yeah, I, for sure. There's also this interesting like dynamic of when you 
like taxi brought me to New York on a WPP visa and I was able to wrangle a switch to gray, but I was never able until I got a green card recently, I would never have been able to leave WPP without leaving um, the country. And so your employment prospects are like comparatively limited. And I think one interesting thing about that is, as we know, one of the, I'd say like not great, but true things about many agencies is the way that people often move up and get more money and find success is through the credible threat of their departure. Um, so when that credible threat is not available to you because of visa situations, I think that was cer- certainly something I felt for a long time. Um, but now I have a green card. So <laughs> I feel I feel reborn. It was like getting getting that piece of paper was like almost as like formative as like, you know, a lot of the other major life changes in my adult life. Wow, the coveted green card. Um, what other what other bits of advice would you give to someone who's thinking about making this move? I think one mistake I made, born from kind of the same assumption I was talking about before, where it's like this these countries feel very close and akin to each other. That made me think that I could slip into American agency life unnoticed, unseen, unspotted, accent undetected. <laughs> um, that. I would that I could pass as essentially American in this sort of strange thing, although I have like, I think hopefully like sanded down some of the like edges of my Ontarian accent over time. I don't know. You can tell me. But um, one of the things that I didn't anticipate that really was the thing is that there are cultural differences that drive ad differences because we are in the culture business every day. Like lack of familiarity with these like fine nuances of American life became in many situations, like to often to comic relief. Like it's not like I had a, ever a giant career limiting moment over this, but I did have a lot of like clients ribbing me over something I just didn't get about often about American football. I've worked on so many damn sports campaigns for so many brands. And I like truly do not like, it's one thing to grasp the like rules of the game or be able to like, you know, wind your way through a like sports metaphor in a meeting. Um, It's another thing to like understand American rituals, like for example, tailgating (laughs) with something other than like an external anthropologist eye um, when everybody else in the room sort of like grew up deeply, deeply embedded in these kinds of traditions. So I think partly it's sort of stuff like that. I think another thing that is in a sort of less lighthearted way that's different is that there are things that we take like, uh, for example, advertising that would be considered progressive or controversial here that I've had to make like enormous efforts to sell because it felt vaguely political. I think I would have sold much more easily in my Canadian advertising days. I think there's a conservatism sometimes here. And that comes from obviously how divisive things have been and continue to be politically. I think it also comes from the scale and the scope of things that instead of talking to 30 million or so people, you're talking to 330 million people. And so the sort of attendant risk and the pressure to have broad appeal is all like orders of magnitude um, different. So I've noticed that that is a sort of real difference. And I mean, I even I work at an agency that, you know, puts out large quantities of pharmaceutical advertising, which of course, like barely, (laughs) I barely touched when I worked in Canada. So there's also just the sheer fact of the like, types of clients and work that we produce are different here because the like laws and regulations and opportunities are different. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I remember from my time working in the U.S., um, I don't even think you can emphasize enough. I mean, it seems so obvious looking at it from the outside, but the regional differences within the U.S. as well and just how much of an anomaly Manhattan and New York are to the rest of the, the country. Oh, yes. And that's very much a theme with because I guess that's another thing I had not understood when I worked at, you know, BBDO or Ogilvy or Taxi in Toronto. Our clients were always in Toronto, too. Like, I remember feeling like I was constantly in a car going to like Mississauga or North York. And but like we were within, you know, like I was going to say like 10 miles of each other, like 15 kilometers. I'm not sure. Bad math. Um. But now it's like I work obviously in New York on clients who are never in New York. I, you know, who are in Chicago or DC or Geneva or Oakland or various places, and for whom the like possible disconnect between their snobby, pretentious Manhattanite agency partners and like them and their buyers is often a sort of topic of conversation and the like work that you have to do to be both, you know still yourself, but also able to like transcend your own personal like experience and understanding of what the world is based on where you live is I think like a very real thing. But yeah, the regional, I mean, I find by and large the regional stuff fascinating. I worked on one of the first brands I worked on here when um, I was at Taxi before I went to Gray was Velveeta and Rotel, which is like the sort of like storied queso combo um that's like hugely regionally dominant in some parts of the country and like absolutely disparaged and mocked in other parts of the country namely the part of the country where I was like you know sitting in Manhattan making the advertising um and I worked for years um at Gray on a brand called Old Bay which is a seasoning brand based in like Baltimore pretty iconic kind of like it's a sort of brand that people get like Old Bay tattoos you know because they love it so much and it's like I never seen it you know I've never seen or used Old Bay in my life because like people in Toronto generally don't it would be a novelty too um I now work on Modelo is one of it's like my favorite brand that I work on at the agency it's the number two best-selling beer in America um and because I didn't grow up here and certainly not in a part of the U.S. where Modelo is you know dominant the brand for me was like, I was, you know, barely familiar with it. And I'm shocked. It's like almost like eight years in to still find moments where I'm surprised by like those things that like my experience of this country is still like still incomplete and still distinct and different from most people's. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I never really thought there's this whole kind of long tail aspect to the U.S. once you start diving into the uh, different ethnicities and regions and yeah. Brands. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what else have you observed while there? <laughs> like number four one is less the content of advertising and more sort of the context of it, which is kind of about learning to set my own limits um, within this place. There is this sort of com compounded intensity of like I've been building a career in a country that is arguably the most like live to work country around also within that live to work country, the most work obsessed city, the city where people are like, you know, ambitious and driven almost as a default personality trait. And then within that, an extremely demanding clients serving <laughs> industry. So there's sort of all these layers. And I've swum in that world for a really, really long time and sort of the expectations that come with that level of intensity that it does feel normal now. It's like my sort of I've like adjusted in some ways. I am surprised now when I go home for, you know, Christmas or 
the holidays or whatever for the summer of how anomalous my work life and the intensity of it is relative to like my friends and family um, back home. And I think the interesting thing for me about that is that I used to view that intensity as sort of a badge of honor. And I feel very differently about it now. Um, I used to think like, oh, I'm capable of just like working harder and grinding it out and ascending. And I have none of those feelings now. I think what I think is that the ultimate prize is to like find a way to do this work and remain a person at the same time. In my case, a person who can like have a creative life outside of work and has, you know, a husband and now two children and wants those things not to feel like cursory things on the edges of a life that's dominated by like pitches and rush deadlines and, you know, endless needs. And I think the interesting thing about doing that here is watching culture finally change. Like I never had the sense or expectation that we would see what's happening in like American corporate life now. And I suspect, frankly, just like corporate life everywhere in any big and demanding place where people are pushing back and saying no and drawing boundaries and expecting that their work lives be rewarding um, is like is new. I love to see it. I'm like adoring, observing it. And I think I've really changed how I think about my work life here in the last you know couple of years. Yeah. And so you're finding on both sides, like the employer and the employee is uh, more open to that, it sounds like, like through the pandemic. I mean, I think that there is a recognition that we're in a business where, you know, to like the use whatever the like adage about like your talent goes out down the elevator and out the door every day. Like we are the only like um, (laughs) only thing that we have is the like quality of the people who, you know, work with and for us. And I think I guess I don't presume that like any corporation is like has lost all self-interest and is like, yeah, of course, like everything should be like breezy. But what I do think is that I've watched like the place where I work grapple with and come to understand that they don't really have a choice, but to make the like conditions of working life um, more generous and human and empathetic um, because people have choices now in a way that they didn't before, I think, because of the way the labor market is and because of the expectations of being able to work from anywhere. And because like people who, you know, leave, who work with me often leave to go to places like tech companies or to go in-house or to go to startups. And so I think the notion that your competition is not like in my case, just like, you know, McCann or BBDO, but like is other places, I think has really changed um, the way that agencies have to respond, even if they might not want to. I don't want to give them too much credit, but they have to. And they are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think we're on number five, but I want to make sure I've captured these all before we move on. So the first one you had for was go for life versus work. Yep. Uh, number two uh, was become a visa pro or your immigration <laughs> own immigration advocate or just be really lucky. It sounds like. Right. Um, like as if you could just like will yourself to be lucky. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> number three, uh, I guess, is about appreciating the differences culturally between the U.S. and Canada, even though on, you know, at, at first glance, you might not think that there would be many differences. Yeah, I think for me, it's just about not assuming that it will be the same, even if on the face of it, it feels like. Like, sure, we're like, you know, we're all one. Yeah. It's not, not quite. I'm sure um, that they presume the same of you as well, because I got that as well when I worked in, in the U.S. People were like, what? Y- you don't call those smarties? Or like, you, oh, like, right. how, how do you it's not rocks. know this? Like, oh, man. Yeah. Rockets are smarties. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, tip number four was about setting your own limits. And what's your yeah. what's your final tip or observation, um, having worked now eight years in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I do think I, you know, having been like so like dour about the state of like corporations and visa things, I did want to sort of end on a little more positive note, which is about sort of reveling in the bigness of it all. And I think there is joy to be had in never having to work on an adapt ever. <laughs> you know, it's like everything that I work on, I get to set the blueprint rather than responding to it, which has been really wonderful. And also, cause like, you know, of course, like I got to take a little cynical turn also brings pressure, which is the sort of pressure of your work, having to work globally. I remember when when I worked in Canada, I always sort of worked on one of two kinds of projects. Largely, it was like either U.S. pickup, did not like or enjoy, but did. And then more often, like original work that was designed specifically for the Canadian market was, I feel like, what I spend most of my time um, at Canadian agencies doing. And then like occasionally, occasionally, like I happened to intern at Ogilvy on Dove in like 2008 by like the world's greatest stroke of luck. Um, that work was like made for, you know, Canada and went to every country globally because it was so extraordinary. Or I worked on um, Doritos when I was at BBDO Toronto and similarly, some of that work found legs elsewhere. But that notion of like your Canadian work being so good that it gets picked up around the world is sort of like, it, ha- it happens, but it's like, those are extraordinary moments rather than typical ones. And I think now at a minimum, I'm working on work that is designed for, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And I think often what I'm trying to do is crack campaigns that every other global market will have to run with. And so as someone who spent the early days of my career, often on the receiving end of someone else's global deck, being like, how do I like adapt this to my market? There is like sort of a funny thing now in the creation of those decks where I, I mean, I don't, it's not like I'm ha ha ha, ha like you're going to have to implement this like somewhere else. Um, but I like do try to write them with like sort of the empathy of not feeling. I don't want the like global decks that I write to feel like some clueless New Yorker person, like pushing their vision of some brand's world onto like, you know, a part of the world where that's not the case at all. Um, so I do think having some experience working in a market that isn't this one has given me a bit more sort of sensitivity to that. But I do still like enjoy and get a kick out of like the scale of the whole thing here. How, how closely do you work with other strategists um, at Gray, like in other markets, if you're working on global uh, brands? So I used to work for years and years on P&G um, and then always all the time, every day, like they would have, they had like a Dusseldorf office and a London office that we worked very closely with. And like, I did research in China to bring Downey to China. And so there were like, you know, there was a Hong Kong office and we were like working really closely with them. I now work largely on brands. Like for example, Modelo is like a US only account I work on. Um, McCormick actually, which uh, makes Clubhouse, which the like plant for clubhouses in London, my like hometown. Um, And I work on US and Canada work. And so we do work with like, we work with a little bit with Tank in Montreal, and we work with like Gray's Toronto office sometimes. And there are, yeah, we do work with like, you know, planners in different markets. And also, I mean, I think the thing that's very different is I'm never the only planner on a team here. Like, and that like the lone wolf planner is like so much less of a a thing um, here just owing to the scale of the whole thing. I think I 
was always the like one planner in my um, accounts when I was in Canada. Now we're off and on fairly large teams of planners on a single account. Um, and that to me, I guess, is another sort of like nice consequence of the bigness. Yeah, actually ha- being able to, you know, collaborate and bounce things off of each other and work yeah. together on things. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Um, so final question, are you, are you ever coming back? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Am I ever going to share an office with you ever again? <laughs> oh, I would love that. Are there still like offices? My like <laughs> gray is entirely like cubicle based now. I feel like there's like, I'll never have an office again, um, but I would love to share one with you. I I don't know. I think the thing that if if we go back, I think the thing that will bring us back will probably be personal rather than professional. Because the sort of like unsaid thing about all of this is that, you know, I live in a different country than like my mom and dad and both my siblings. And so there are costs of like choosing a life where you are not proximate to the people you, you know, love most and grew up with, I think does come at some costs that have nothing to do with your job and everything to do with your life outside of work. And so I do think if we ever are brought back, it will probably be because that stuff felt, you know, suddenly urgent and important um, in a way that made it impossible to sort of ignore or delay with frequent trips and visits. So um, yeah, the answer is maybe. um, And we'll see. We're like trying to not predict too much. (laughs) Fair enough. Right. Well, Justine, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, it was really great to reconnect with you. I mean, this was lovely. I appreciate it so much. So yeah, thanks, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.